Sometimes there's nothing to do. Sometimes in your life there's nothing you can do. And the longer you live, the more times you will experience that. There will be situations where there's nothing you can do except one thing, and that is wait upon the Lord. Waiting is doing. I had to learn that a long time ago. Waiting is doing. Because a lot of times when you don't wait, you end up sinning. (laughs) Using illegitimate means to get you out of whatever jam you're in. (laughs) And waiting often is an alternative to actually going off and disobeying. So, I thank those musicians who wrote that wonderful, wonderful song we've, we've just sung. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, and we really have our work cut out for us here, here this morning. And I've already used up uh, some of our time. So we're here in uh, 1 Peter, and Peter has shown us that people respond in two very different a very different ways to God's chosen cornerstone, Jesus Christ, which God laid in the foundation of a new Zion, which He is building. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6, we read right there, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. That's the first response, to believe on Him. And those who do will never be put to shame. But others do not see the value of the cornerstone. They don't see it and they toss it aside. It is of no use to them. The cornerstone to them is, verse 7, what? The stone which the builders rejected. To them the stone becomes a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. There's only two responses to that cornerstone, and those are the only two. You either see the surpassing value of that cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ, or you cast him and set him aside. It's one or the other. The gospel always is like that. There's only two responses. There's not this big middle, middle ground. It's one or the other. And I hope and I pray for all of you here this morning, you've seen that surpassing value. And that has caused you to believe in Him. Since God sent His Son Jesus Christ into our world, people continue to respond to Him in these two ways. Some see that surpassing greatness and value of Jesus Christ and they believe in Him. Others have little, little or no use for Him. The fact that God sent His Son into our world has no effect upon them. And I hope you're not one of those. In verses 9-10, through 10, which we are considering this morning, Peter continues to encourage these early Christian believers both Jewish and Gentile. They are scattered all around throughout these cities in Asia Minor, and they're idol worshipers, and they're practicing their sexual immorality and all the things that we as sinners so e- find so easy to do and have done. They're, they're living in all those different places, and Peter is encouraging them. And In verse 9, Peter Let's read verses 9 through 10. We're going to consider verse 9 through 10 this morning, mostly verse 9. He continues to encourage them. Verse 9, and this is how he does it. Verse 9, but, as opposed to the unbelievers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 
who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That is a loaded statement. There's like ten realities described in those two verses that Peter sets before Christians to encourage them to follow Jesus Christ. Let's look at those. Now, he's found all of those in Exodus chapter 19. Last week we considered that you are a chosen race. Two weeks ago we considered that one, that you are a chosen race. And if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Peter has three more descriptors from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Let's, let's read that passage. Exodus 19. I'll begin reading in, in verse 3. He's pulled all four of these descriptors out of Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to those of the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Isn't that wonderful? I bore you on eagles' wings. And, and do you know the little eaglets actually do that? They, they, they latch hold right on the eagle's wings and mom flies them around. So it's a glorious thing. And God says, that's how I saved you. That's how I came there to Egypt and I plopped you onto my wings and I bore you right out of that place. And where did I bring you? To myself. I brought you to myself. Tell the children of Israel that I'm your God and I'm the one that has done that and I've brought you to myself. Can there be words any more precious than that? If you realize what's happening, what God is doing for His people, I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, you see the grace comes first, and then comes the obedience. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And Peter says all of that is now being played out on a much grander scale through Jesus Christ and Him calling us out and Him calling us to Himself. That's what Peter is telling us, how we ought to understand our Bibles. Suffice it to say that all New Testament authors understand that the Mosaic Covenant arrangement with Moses as its mediator and the covenant ratified by the blood of bulls and goats, that that covenant has ended and its promises are now being fulfilled in the new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ. Not Moses, mediated by Jesus Christ. Not Mosaic Covenant, New Covenant. Not the blood of bulls and goats. New Covenant ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. His death. All of that was figurative and preparatory for the real deliverance from slavery and sin and death. All of that pointed to what is now a reality for these New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. 
the royal priesthood, the holy nation, and special people today consist of all those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 2, Peter uses that expression. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And that, of course, is, a, is an imagery to the old covenant where the covenant was ratified and the people were all sprinkled with the blood of the animals. You are now sprinkled with the blood of Jesus in this new covenant. And you have become God's people. That's what Peter is telling us. And we've come to Jesus as to a living stone chosen by God and precious. All Jews and Gentiles who have their faith in Jesus Christ make up this new royal priesthood, this new holy nation who are God's special people. That's how Peter understands the progress of redemption. Let's briefly take a look at all three of these. Believers in Christ collectively are a royal priesthood. When the Lord commanded Moses, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. He separated them out from all the other nations. An ancient priesthood was set apart from the people at large for their ministry to the deity to whom they were privileged as a priesthood to minister to the deity. That's an ancient priesthood. And all the nations, they, had, they all had their priesthoods separated to minister to the deity. The amazing thing about Israel's God is the entire nation is the priesthood. That entire nation has been separated out to Yahweh and to be a kingdom of priests and to mediate the knowledge of the true God. A kingdom of priests. They collectively, I like that word, collectively means all of them together. They collectively shall be a kingdom of priests. And now that was a great, great privilege. You shall be a special treasure to me above all people. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. This is not the ironic or Levitical priesthood that was established later in, at Mount Sinai, this privilege of all God's people serving as priests finds its fullest expression in the book of Revelation. In John's opening doxology in Revelation chapter 1, uh, opening doxology to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he writes this, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is a present reality. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You are. Collectively, that's what the church is. Ancient Israel as a nation or a kingdom became the priesthood serving the true God, worshiping Him as He had commanded and manifesting Him to the other nations, which were steeped in idolatry and false worship. Collectively, they were to be a kingdom of priests. The only kingdom, the only nation that had the revelation of the true God. And that's what we are today in Jesus Christ.
In order for Israel to remain in this privileged position, a kingdom of priests to God, they would have to remain faithful to the Mosaic Covenant, which, of course, they didn't. Peter now declares that collectively Christian believers are God's royal priesthood. We are His kingdom of priests. The royal and the kingdom go together. Those two terms go together. You see how that's working? Royal kingdom. Okay. His kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. They are the ones scattered throughout the nations who now worship and reveal the true God. That's what a royal priesthood does. A royal priesthood reveals the God for whom they serve as priests. That's the vision of the church. The body of Christ. Do you get that? You need to get that. Peter's not gone astray in, in what he's telling those New Testament churches that are scattered all through Asia Minor. He say, guys... Get the vision. That's what you are. That's right. We are the means whereby the true God is revealed and worshipped. There being a royal priesthood and a holy nation go together. The phrase, a holy nation, when applied to ethnic Israel, meant they were separated from all the other nations which were given to idolatry. God, who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, became their king. And as a holy nation, their customs were very different from all the surrounding nations. Their kingdom was geographically constrained to the land that God had promised Abraham. That's true. They were a holy nation in that sense. They were set apart as a nation from all the others. And all the others are worshiping idols. And Israel has a revelation. And that nation is worshiping the one true God. And that made them a holy nation, separate and distinct. That made them a holy nation. The phrase, you are a holy nation, applied to New Testament believers, means essentially the same thing, but in a far greater sense and scale. We are separated from the rest of humankind unto the worship and service of the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ and in His kingdom. We are in His unique kingdom, which is spread across the face of this earth. His kingdom has been inaugurated. It has begun. We are that holy nation or holy kingdom spread across the entire earth. That's what we are. Peter says, you are a holy nation. His kingdom is spread throughout the entire world. And the true God is to be worshipped in... The true God that is to be worshipped is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of priests just as Revelation 1.6 says. Revelation 1.6 is not a prophecy waiting to be fulfilled. Okay, that's a present reality for the people of God. Read Revelation 1.6. Read Revelation 5, 10, and 11. Those are not, however, it doesn't matter. You can interpret uh, a Revelation however you'd like. But those two passages I've mentioned are not prophecies waiting to be fulfilled. We are a kingdom of priests, of kings and priests. So, being separated as a holy nation, our conduct 
Our values, our speech, our hope, our joy, our service are all very different from those who surround us. Just as Israel as a holy nation was very different from all those Gentile nations, so must we be. And so are we. Third, God's own special treasure. Exodus 19.5 reads, You shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. They They are the people out of all the peoples of the world that God claims for himself as his own special treasure. I don't know about you. (laughs) God claims us as his own special treasure. There's only been one person in my entire life that has ever done that to me. And that was my dear wife. (laughs) None of you would ever claim me as your own special treasure. Now, she did, (laughs) in spite of. But God says, you are my own special treasure. When you you think of that, doesn't the temptations kind of weaken a little bit? Right? When, When you're overwhelmed with that thought that God says, come here, come here. You're my special treasure. And when you begin to enter into that, doesn't, don't the temptations weaken? Of course they do. That's the power of assurance of salvation and understanding what that means. God says that. His own special people. His own special treasure. Wow. Peter says believers are His own special people and treasure. Now notice that we are privileged in these four ways for a purpose to fulfill an extremely high calling. You are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's our purpose. Peter is referring to Isaiah 43 now. This was ancient Israel's calling after God delivered them from the Babylonian exile. That's what Isaiah 43 is talking about. The deliverance from the Babylonian exile. Isaiah 43.21 reads, This people I, the Lord, have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. I've formed this people for myself. What is their purpose? What is their task? They shall declare my praise. And Peter brings that forward, of course, just like he brings Exodus 19 forward. He brings Isaiah 43.21 forward and he applies it to the New Testament church body of Christ, the, the, the collective of believers. And they shall declare my praise. Brothers and sisters, that's now us. This people, I the Lord have formed for myself. That's the new creation. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. He's been born again. He's been created again. He's been resurrected from the dead. I, that's how He formed us, correct? How are we formed for Him? 
by being born again, by being resurrected, by being the new creation. He has formed us for Himself. That's utterly amazing. This people I have formed for Myself. In Christ. That's our purpose. We are the chosen race, His own special people, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We have two very significant statements there. God's purpose for His chosen race, His holy nation. I've been talking about that. And second, we have a description of God's work in the believer's life. Let's look at both of those a little bit more. God's purpose for calling us. The Christian sees the making of God's excellence known as his or her real calling. Your real calling. Why are you alive? This is the reason. That's right. That you may proclaim His excellencies. To to discover them and to proclaim them. That's why you are alive. That's why I am alive. Not alive the first time. Why you are alive the second time. Got it? Right. That's why. That Whatever our calling may be, this is every Christian's real final calling. We all have various callings, and they change during different periods of our lives. But proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light is our highest calling which never changes. It never changes You are hired (laughs) to be an instrument of God's glory and making Him known. You are hired and you will never be fired and you will never be laid off of this calling. And you need to wake up in the morning and realize whatever job you're going to, or whatever job you're looking for to try to find one, you are employed, you have a job, you have a calling. And this is it, brothers and sisters. And that puts your life on an entirely different plane from the world or how your life used to be. That's... What Peter says, that's our calling. As a redeemed man or woman, as a member of the chosen race, as a citizen of the holy nation, this one thing I do. I proclaim, I make known the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. He saved you so you would proclaim how magnificent A God He is. That's right. This is your great calling, and I would urge you to consider this is your life's calling. That's what Peter is telling us. Now, and what is one of His excellencies that we can proclaim? It's right there in the text. He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's one of His excellencies, isn't it? That He called us. The idea of God's calling is not that of an invitation which may be accepted or refused. God's calling represents the exertion of His power that brings a person out of darkness into His marvelous light. We were helplessly trapped in darkness as ethnic Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God brought them and us out. He called them out. 
referring to Israel, the Lord himself says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And we know what that involved. Read Exodus. Out of Egypt I have called my son. God didn't go up to the border in Egypt and say, Hey, you guys, will you come on out, please? (laughs) Come on out. I'm calling you out. Would anybody have crossed the border? Not a single one. No, out of Egypt I have called my son. He exerted his power and he brought them out. That's the calling. Okay, so he's done that for us. We are... We were helplessly trapped in darkness as ethnic Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God brought, uh, God brought us out. Our calling and deliverance is no less miraculous and spectacular than Israel's. Absolutely. I mean, look at us. Look at what we used to be. <laughs> I mean, look at the darkness we used to live in. (laughs) Our calling is just as miraculous. It just is. In Acts... In Acts chapter 26, 18, I won't turn there, but it's really parallel with Peter's statement. It's where God calls Paul and says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And, and it's regarding how God, what, God is what opens their eyes and turns us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. I'm just summarizing Acts 26, 18. God turns us from darkness to light and the dominion and power of Satan to God. You think Satan let go of you? Without his wicked fingers being pried off of your soul? No, no, no. Just as the casting out of all those demons... (laughs) Your salvation is as miraculous as any demon exorcism. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. Your salvation is as miraculous as the, any exorcism of any demon. To turn them from the power of Satan to God. That's why Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Okay? That's right. And we can proclaim His excellency for doing that work. Absolutely. Darkness represents falsehood and ignorance regarding God, His world, His Son, our relationship to God. And how we can be saved and much more. That's all darkness. False ways of salvation. All of that is darkness. Darkness represents the power of Satan over us. The prince of the power of the air. Ruling in the sons of disobedience. Darkness. All of that. When you are in the dark, you cannot see anything for what it really is. You can't see anything for what it really is. And as unbelievers, we don't know what it means that the sun rises and there's food on the table and I have life and I have a child. As an unbeliever, you don't really know what any of those things mean. Right? You don't really understand any of those things rightly when you are in darkness. Mm -mm. And that's why you don't give thanks for any of those things. (laughs) Darkness. You can't see anything for what it really is. But the illustration breaks down because when we're in physical darkness, at least we know it. But if we're in spiritual darkness, we don't know it. It's like the idolater that Isaiah describes that, you know, he cuts down a tree and out of one part of the tree, 
He makes a, you know, he makes an idol out of one part of the tree and out of the other part of the tree he puts it on the fire and warms himself and, and he bows down to the other part of the tree and says, my God. And the text says that, that he has, he, he cannot see that he has a lie in his right hand. He does that and he can't see that he has a lie in his right hand. That's what our unconverted culture is like. That is darkness. And the prince of darkness is behind it. Praise God. He's delivered us from darkness. You don't see anything right. Professing to be wise, we become fools. God's wrath is not upon me. Oh, yes, it is. My lifestyle is not sinful and disobedient to God. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Oh, yes, he did. God won't send me to hell. Oh, yes, He will. God is like... No, He is not. (laughs) Now, here's one. I'm too evil to be saved. Oh, no, you aren't. Oh, no, you aren't. Okay? All of that is darkness. What the world needs now is not fundamentally love, sweet love. Oh, that was a blasphemous song. Some of you aren't old enough to know it. (laughs) No, what the world needs now is not love, sweet love. What the world needs now, even more than love, is truth and light. And love will never be understood without truth and light. So we're, we're going to get back to the love. We are going to get back to the love if we get the truth and light correct. Then we'll get the love correct, won't we? That's right. But God be praised. He's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. As far as being called into that marvelous light, I will use Paul to expand on Peter's words. But I do think Peter's phrase and the passage I'm going to read to you from Paul really are somewhat parallel. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. Now we're talking about the marvelous light. I've been talking about the darkness. I'm going to talk about the marvelous light now a little bit. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Paul says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, this is why calling is and must be a miracle. Whose mind the God of this world is blinded and their, their spiritual sight is zero. They are blinded and they don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They, they look at that Wonderful cornerstone, and they, I have no need of that, and they just toss it aside. That's the satanic blindness of every unbeliever. They toss that glorious stone aside. How glorious is that stone? Listen to that. They don't see. Look at it here. Lest the light of The gospel, what is it? What is the light of the gospel? It's the good news of the glory of Christ. That's the good news. How glorious Jesus Christ is, is the good news. (laughs) Right? He is so glorious 
And that's good news. Because that means He's able to save you. The gospel of the glory of Christ is the good news about the glory of Christ. And who is He? He is the image of God. The true God. That's how we know the true God. And that light has to shine on us. So this why calling is a must. This must be a miracle. Well, now Paul goes on. Well, obviously then, who should we preach? <laughs> well, you know, we ought to preach Jesus Christ, obviously, if that's true. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. That's right. That's who we are to preach. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord in ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And now here comes the light. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There you go. You've been delivered from darkness into His marvelous light. It is a marvelous light indeed to use Peter's adjective. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light will transform you. Paul's going to say that in another passage. We behold the glory of the Lord and we are transformed from glory to glory. Marvelous light. Well, there's a number of concepts packed into 1 Peter 2.9. It's almost overwhelming. I'm going to summarize a little bit and then do a few applications. Peter has shown us that those who recognize the surpassing value of God's cornerstone and believe in Him, they will be honored in the context. Verse 9 shows us just how great that honor is by mentioning those four blessings. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. The honor is heaped upon us by coming to Him as a living stone. Believers have been blessed in these extraordinary ways so that they will proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. There are many applications, but I will mention only two. And I'd like to point out that Becoming God's own special people in a holy nation radically affects our relationship with the world. I'm mentioning this because I believe we are beginning to experience what early believers experienced during the first three centuries. We saw two weeks ago that believers becoming a chosen race resulted in Christians being criticized by first century pagan society. From the conception of Christians as a distinct race came the accusation that believers in Christ were haters of mankind. Remember that? Were haters of mankind. And it gave rise to the charge that Christians are antisocial. They formed their own new and strange communities. The New Testament calls these new and strange communities Churches, they form, they're antisocial, they're so different, and, uh, and they won't go to the pagan churches. <laughs> well, similar difficulties arrive for believers from the concept that Christians are a holy nation. And I will quote K. Jobes again, a long quote, regarding this matter. And this was written 18 years ago, what I'm going to quote for you. Similar problems arise because we are a holy nation. Quote, just as the understanding of Christians 
as forming a new race brought potential alienation from popular society, Christians becoming a holy nation brought a potential conflict of divided loyalties, resulting in charges of treason and poor citizenship against Christians of the Roman Empire. Is that starting to sound a little familiar? Poor citizenship? Jesus' instruction to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's presents the issue of deciding which is which. First century Christians were often persecuted and executed not because they worshipped Jesus. In a polytheistic society, what is one more God? But because of the higher claim of the gospel that only in Christ is the one true God to be worshipped. Because the prosperity and welfare of the empire were believed to depend on religious forces, the Christians' exclusive allegiance to Jesus as God was naturally viewed as detrimental to the rest of society. From that perspective, Christians were bad citizens of the empire. And this made them subject to accusations of treason. The self-understanding of the early church as a holy nation is attested by the force brought against them by the Roman Empire state. That's right. As Merrill points out, quote, there finally came a time when the Roman Empire must either fight or tamely acknowledge a superpower within its own borders. That was the Christians inside the Roman. They had such an influence. They had to either acknowledge the superpower within their borders or they had to fight. For three centuries, they fought and persecuted the superpower, the holy nation, within their borders. And at the time of the Constantinian change, they finally acknowledged the superpower within their borders, and the Christian church became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And whether that was a good or a bad thing is a, is a long discussion. But you see, under the modern ideology that separates church and state, it is perhaps easier today to separate what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God but to the extent that government formulates policy directly bearing on moral and ethical issues, abortion, war, the place of religious faith in the public forum, to that extent, Christians still have to face the problems raised by holding dual citizenship in the country of their residence and in the holy nation of God, end quote. That's right. And we're beginning to enter into that period. How many times have you heard, brothers and sisters, that it's Christians that are impeding the progress of this nation? It's Christians that are in the way of the utopian vision for the earth. I mean, we've been hearing that for 30, 40 years. We are the problem. The holy nation is the problem. We are stepping into that type of experience as Christians. And we need to reacquaint ourselves with the history of the first three centuries, which would be very, very helpful, I think. For us. So, we have arrived, and it helps to understand what is going on. It also helps to know that believers have sailed through these seas before us. 
My second application, very quickly, is to take us back to the purpose for which we have been highly honored, that you may proclaim the praises of him, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Whoever you are, whatever your background, if you've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, you've been reoriented to this grand purpose, proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called you. This we must never forget. How do we proclaim his excellencies? We could make a long list, but I'll give you the key. How do you proclaim His excellencies? Where do you start? By believing in Him. When you live by faith in Him, you are making a declaration that He is trustworthy that He has made promises to you and that He keeps those promises. Living by faith in Him is a testimony to His excellencies. Whether you're living and rejoicing and thanking Him, whether you're living and suffering while you're living, whether you're being persecuted, whether you're prospering, whatever you are doing, if you are living by faith in Him, you will be proclaiming His excellencies. My God is big enough to get me through this life and He's big enough to get me through the grave and I know that. He has come on eagle's wings to bear me to Himself. And when you live by faith that way, you are making a declaration to everyone who sees you of His excellencies. That's right. Let's pray. Father, thank You once again for Your glorious Son and for Your apostolic testimony to Him for the good news of the glory of Your Son. Lord, we feel at times like we want to be moved and affected in a greater way. Lord, we want our temptations to weaken and our resolves to honor You, to be strengthened. And Lord, we perceive that seeing the reality of what these words describe we believe is a means to that end. So help us not look at these things and cast the cornerstone aside. And thank You for coming after us and bringing us to You at such an infinite cost of giving Your own Son Lord, we ask for a triple measure of Your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon Your churches in this land. Would You do that? That would be a great mercy, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.